it's not healthy for a democracy and it's not healthy for us as a society. You know, if the only people we talk to are people like us, you know, we're not having the kind of common conversation that a democracy needs that's healthy for people to realize, hey, we've got some things in common here we could do together instead of just seeing each other as arch enemies. Hello and welcome to A New Angle. I'm your host, Justin Angle, Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around Missoula, Montana. We're interested in creativity and hustle, and the people we'll speak with here exude both of those in spades. Buckle up and let's go. Hello and welcome back to A New Angle. Thanks for tuning in today. Today's episode features an interview I did with Joel Benenson, and I'll get to the bio later um, in a couple seconds. But a uh, funny thing about this interview, so Joel's kind of a big time guy, uh, appears on TV all the time. You know, if you tune into MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, he's one of those guys you hear talking about politics pretty frequently. So I got to admit, I was a little bit starstruck in this interview, and I was also fumbling around with this new recording equipment we have. Hopefully you've been able to notice that, that we're, we're making some improvements in sound quality, and that's because we've been able to make investments in uh, some recording equipment based on the help of our, of our generous sponsors. So far, our two sponsors have been CED and uh, Sapphire Physical Therapy, and we're really grateful for uh, what they've enabled us to do here. So I was fumbling around with new equipment. It's made it a little bit more complicated, but I think the outcome is good for all of you. So bear with me there. Uh, and let's get to Joel. So Joel Benenson is a premier political strategist and pollster. He was the lead pollster on uh, President Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. He sat second chair in the 2008 campaign. He worked for Bill Clinton, and he, and he was also chief pollster in Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. Joel was visiting University of Montana because we reached out to him. When I say we, I mean myself and uh, Sarah Rinfrey, uh, associate professor of political science and also our master's of public administration director. So Sarah and I co-teach a graduate seminar that produces the Big Sky Poll. And if you've been reading any of the news, um, we've been publishing our results the last few weeks, and we should have a few more results coming in the weeks to come. Uh, so this class uh, is right up Joel's alley. We learned that Joel has a place here in Montana, loves to visit Montana. And we reached out and said, hey, will you come to talk to our students? So he was generous enough to drive over and sit down with our students, spend a full day with us, just it was fantastic, and he was kind enough to agree to a podcast interview. And we had we had a pretty fun time talking about a variety of things: uh, the role of the media in politics, uh, how to craft a message in a campaign from polling data, how to conduct a, a poll properly, all sorts of things like that. The purpose of polling. He had a unique uh, perspective there that I really appreciated. So anyway, Joel's a big time guy. And uh, it was really fun to sit down with him. And hopefully you, if you like politics, this one will be fun for you. I'll get out of the way and give you Joel Benenson. Okay, so we're here today with Joel Benenson. Joel, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Joel, you are described as the premier pollster or strategist in political campaigns these days. Is that correct? Well, I've done, uh, I think I've done, uh, I was the, uh, on the polling team and the lead pollster um, uh, more than anybody else. I mean, I've been on three winning presidential campaigns, yeah. 
once kind of in the second chair, but twice as the lead pollster. Um, and lost once in, in the last one. But, you know, there are a lot of good pollsters and good polling firms out there, but we've been, you know, you got to be lucky uh, as well as good. So sure. we've been we've been in the right place sometimes, but it's been, it's been a good run. Okay. And before we get too far into it, what is your connection to Montana? Why am I sitting here with you today? <laughs> I fell in love across a crowded room a little over 30 years ago with a woman who... Uh, Grew up in Colorado, but who has strong Montana roots. Her, okay. Her father grew up in Montana. Her, uh, uh, his family had homesteaded here in the 19th century in southwest Montana. And we've been coming here for as long as I've known her. Um, her folks moved from Colorado back here. And so uh, it's a magnificent place. And, you know, I, I remember the first time I came out here and uh, being a typical New Yorker saying, what's all this big sky stuff? And when you land and you get off the plane and you see the sky for the first time, it's just a remarkable feeling and you breathe that air. And it's just a great place to come. It's different from where I live every day mm-hmm. and um, love coming out here. So this won't be my last time here. Yeah, I mean, that, that story. <laughs> it's, my, it, it's my second time in Missoula, I think. Okay. Um, and your father-in-law was a student at the University of Montana, right? I believe he got his bachelor's degree here. I think he he he, he may have started at MSU, I don't recall, but then he, he went on to uh, to get a PhD from Yale in geology. And so, you know, my wife growing up was always in the mountains because they spent their summers. He was mapping and uh, traversing the southwestern Rockies. And uh, wow. yeah, it was, uh, he was a great guy. He passed away a few years ago, but he, he was a, a very classic Montanan. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really was, you know, a tall, wise figure and a, a great guy. And when you were in the mountains with him, he just voluminous knowledge about that and so many other things. Yeah. And so now you're visiting University of Montana today. You were kind enough to, to donate your time to our class, the class that I co-teach with uh, Professor Sarah Rinfrey, uh, where we're producing the University of Montana Big Sky Poll. Mm-hmm. And so I can't think of a better kind of guest to have in our class to help educate us on <laughs> our first attempt at oh, this we'll have poll. to see what the student evaluations, uh, how they come back, right? Students yeah. evaluate everybody these days, right? Exactly. We yeah. could get into, you know, whether that's a good measure of uh, faculty performance or not. But it was we'll, a good session. I, I enjoyed it. It was fun. I thought that yeah. the students got a lot out of it. Yeah. And it kind of uncovered a lot of questions. What, what stood out to me in our discussion was um, you started with a basic premise of principle or, um, you know, the why before the what and principle before policy. Right. Can you speak a little bit about how you, um, the journey that led you to understand that wisdom? Well, I think, um, you know, my background was in communications. I was a journalist before I did this. And if you think about it, they're not such diametrically different professions. Mm-hmm. Journalists spend their time asking you know, trying to be creative in the questions they ask to get unusual or interesting answers and information. And then you piece all those answers together and you write a, a good story that, right. you know, it's, it's got some uh, good content and, and new and different content. You know, in polling, obviously, we're, we're trying, I think we, we, we do a lot of the same thing. We're just trying to be, you know, rigorous methodologically, but we're trying to get at what's going on beneath the surface of the decisions people make and how they think about issues. And I think in my you know, my early training in this and, and how, how it developed was I saw time and again that the most compelling messages that worked in the data in focus groups were those that made some kind of visceral connection with people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we started exploring that more and more. And I think that, and I read a lot about decision making. And, you know, the truth is very rarely do people come to decisions 
and they're black and white. They come with a set of attitudes, you know, preconceived notions, preconceived attitudes, beliefs, or values that are shaping how they think about this problem. And the way, you know, what I saw over and over again was that the messages that were strongest were the ones that found a way to connect with the values that people were bringing to the table. And so it's about them and not you. And so that kind of evolved over time as I, as I started testing policies for candidates and for, you know, governors and senators and presidents. So over time, I kind of shorthanded it and said, you've got to say why before what. Uh-huh. You've got to put principles before policy. And what that meant was you've got to tell people why you're doing something before you tell them what you're going to do for them if you want to have that visceral connection. And when you're talking about policies, which is not front and center in most people's lives, you tell them the principle mm. or the principles you're fighting for before you tell them the policy details. So a good example is things like minimum wage, where if you're fighting because you believe in a higher minimum wage and you're pushing that idea, you say something pretty simple that nobody who works full-time in America should be living in poverty. Yeah, That's why we need to yeah. raise the minimum wage. And then you've kind of got an idea that people buy into because they know people are working full-time and not able to make men's meet in a lot of places because mm-hmm. the minimum wage is too low. And so when you're, when you're talking like that, it sounds like this very instinctual, very kind of emotional connection. But as a pollster, I mean, you're data-driven in a lot of ways. And I know you've said it's a mixture of arts, art and science, but how do you, I mean, in class, you went over all the sort of polling results and data that all folded up into the generation of a very simple, visceral message. Can you talk about that process and how well, you, you lay it out? You got to remember that when you're a pollster, you also do qualitative research. Yeah. You, you know, you want to hear the voice of people. So you use focus groups. You could use one-on-one interviews. We use a technique called ethnojournaling because you want to hear in their language how they're talking about and articulating what the pain points are in their lives, whether mm-hmm. those pain points are about their economic lives, whether it's about their struggle for health care, worried about their children's future. You want to know what their pain points are because those are the things you want to be talking about. You want to talk about the things that are salient to you know a, a, a vast swath of the public, no matter whether you're running for Missoula City Council or state legislature or president of the United States. So that's your starting point always has to come you know, from a candidate. They've got to be grounded. They've got to know what they want to do. Um, but you've got to help guide him or her with how that jibes and works with the people they have to persuade. Okay. Uh, to get elected and then succeed if they're in office to persuade the largest number of people for the policy you're advocating for. Okay. And so coming out of journalism, so you have a deep sense of story, how to tell a story, how to get to an underlying story from an interview subject or whatever it is. Um, how do you then move into politics? Like, what's that look like? <laughs> Why the choice to jump into that line? Well, I covered politics. So I, okay. was, I was covering uh, as the state house bureau chief in uh, Albany, New York, covering New York politics, okay. a governor named Mario Cuomo at the time. Um, and this was in the, the late 80s, early 90s. And journalism was struggling then. It was the beginning of really yeah. a tough time for newspapers. Media was not in full transition yet, but we certainly are now. And Mario Cuomo was a, a, a lion in the Democratic Party. He was a uh, had delivered a, a stunning keynote speech at the 1984 Democratic Convention, and he was a tough guy to cover. He was challenging. I mean, he you had to be you had to be uh, accurate. You had to be rigorous in your thinking because he had a great yeah. mind, and he could he could pick an argument apart 
Um, in fact, I crib a phrase that comes from him. We both grew up in the borough of Queens in New York City. Okay. I use this phrase now when I, I tell people I'm from New York City where a day without an argument is a lost opportunity. <laughs> right. He was the originator of it. I, I stole it from him. But don't blame me. Picasso once said, steal from everybody but yourself. <laughs> so uh, I, I've adapted it. But, you know, it's not an unnatural transition. I, I, I went to work in politics in 1994. Uh, he asked me to be his communications director on what turned out to be his last campaign. Okay. So uh, we lost uh, we lost that campaign, but I knew I, I kind of wanted to go into political consulting, thought I wanted to be, uh, make ads maybe. Um, I, uh, I knew David Axelrod by phone. Okay. Uh, because I was a reporter. He was a consultant before I was, and mm-hmm. we struck up a big friendship over the phone. I'd interview him for a lot of stories, particularly when Cuomo was thinking of running for president. Um, and then in that campaign in 94, we used him to make the independent uh, expenditure ads, and we really uh, got close there in that campaign. And, you know, um, I, uh, I thought I wanted to make ads, so I went to learn about him at an ad agency, which was involved in kind of a political back and forth uh-huh. back in the days of the long distance wars. Nobody listening to this is old enough to remember when AT&T and MCI were fighting over the landline oh, phones and long, and long, di- and yeah, long yeah. distance fees, right? Um, but that was when I saw a really good polling presentation for the first time. Okay. And I thought to myself, that's really what I want to do. I want to be the guy with the data in the front of the room telling people what the strategy is and why. Hmm. And uh, the the firm that was working on that with us on the ad side, ultimately, uh, we with the CEO of that firm, I worked on one project there. And then he asked me to come and work for him. And I thought he was going to ask me to uh, work on corporate accounts. And, you know, when he offered me the job, um, he said, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll spend this next year working on the Clinton campaign. This was 1995. So okay. it was Bill Clinton's reelection campaign. He said, and then you'll go do some corporate work. And that's what I did. I cut my teeth in in polling on a a presidential campaign. Wow. But I I should say because, you know, I spent the time talking to kids and the poll students. In class. They're they're, they're not kids. They're students. Right. Because they're not all young people. Mm -hmm. Like neither am I. But one of the people who runs the Marist College poll when I was a journalist had started that in the 80s oh. in New York State. Okay. And I was always fascinated by it. And, I, you know, I never thought of it as a profession because I didn't see the potential of it then. But I'm still friendly with Lee Meringoff and Barbara Carvalho who run that poll mm-hmm. and have been for now over 30 years. I go up to Marist and I talk to those kids because – I learned a lot from Lee just by continually asking him questions, even back then, about why do you ask a question this way? Why didn't you ask it that way? Always was curious about it. Yeah. And what have you learned about, you know, I don't want to get too into the weeds about asking questions, but, you know, what's the thought process that goes into, you know, you got to identify what you're trying to measure and then how you're trying to measure it. What's that process look like for your So I never start with what I'm trying to measure. I always start with what do I want to learn? What do I need to learn in this poll? Why am I doing this poll? What are the objectives? Okay. And then you construct a questionnaire and a survey based on that. And you design your question so that you're not just always looking for a single question that's going to answer what you want in the survey, because usually you're after trying to understand issues that are layered, that have some texture, some nuance. Uh So you have to sometimes use multiple types of questions and techniques within the survey to bring together a confluence of data that that you can tell the story or derive the story from 
so that it's coherent, it's cohesive, it's going to be persuasive. You've got, you know, an architecture that tells you here's the main thing you're going to talk about and drive, but here are the other pieces that fit into that in terms of whether it's the attributes about yourself you want to drive, whether it's about the values you're trying to connect with your audience okay. on, uh, whether the issue is economics or healthcare or education, right? You've got to find the road into that connection. And that's usually what we're trying to do in Poland, not just take people's temperature, but really elicit from them some really interesting, intricate responses that enable us to construct a strategic architecture for your communications. And we call that at my firm, we uncover the hidden architecture of opinion. Right. And so we use a lot of different techniques, qualitative and quantitative, to get us there. And so first kind of, well, not your first presidential campaign, but but big splash with the, the Obama 2008 campaign. Yeah, that was fun. I'm sure it was. <laughs> you got this confluence of, you know, your you're kind of developing this expert. You're, you want to be that guy in the front of the room that translates the data into strategy, but you've also got this exceptionally gifted communicator as your candidate. Right. And an extraordinary team that was put together. Okay. So remember, David Axelrod at that point is the chief strategist, and he assembled a team of people that he uh, he, he described it in his book that when uh, – I'm going to paraphrase it, but when Barack Obama called him in late 2006 and said, okay, let's go, and Axe was charged with putting the team together, the day after President Obama was elected in 2008, he had a brunch for all of us, and he, okay. uh, he, said, uh, he said to us, you know, when, when, when Barack Obama called me and said, go ahead, put the team together, he said he felt like Danny Ocean in Ocean's Eleven. He said he could call the best people he knew from all around the country who he could trust and put together a dream team. And it was a dream to work on that. We were we were all consummate professionals. We were all good at what we did. There was so much mutual trust and respect for each other. Um, probably a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Yeah. And at what point do you know on to 2012. Like you're not you're not looking at a position in the White House, I don't think, right? Was that wasn't I really path. wasn't. I think there was there, there might have been one time where I thought about it just thinking like am I crazy not to do this? Yeah. But I was at a different point in life, a different point in my career, you know. I mean all all the wonderful young people who worked on that campaign and went in, it was great. Yeah. You know, but I was already running a company that would have been harder for me to separate from at that time. And I still run the company. You know, I sometimes wonder, I, I think the world of President Obama. And, uh, you know, I sometimes wonder if I didn't miss an opportunity, sure. maybe even if it was for a year or two. Um, you know, I just finished reading a book by uh, a good friend from that campaign, Alyssa Mastromonaco, uh -huh. who was ultimately the uh, deputy chief of staff. And uh, it was a great read. And it was, you know, both reminiscing, but also... Um, you know, good to look back on those times and what it was like to be part of a team like that that was so productive and um, so tight. So on to 2012. 2012, the, you know, the Obama campaign in 2008 was sort of renowned for their use of technology and data and some of the social media platforms that had emerged. But by 2012, those platforms are, are much more ubiquitous. Yeah. How does the... How does the process and the game change in that campaign? Well, I, I think um, I think the game's changing and it's going to stay in a state of change right. for a while. Things are changing so fast that, as, as you just pointed out, Justin, is that like if you go from 2008 to 2012, um, you know, there were things that just evolved enormously in those four years in terms of data analytics, data collection, um, some of the, the, the testing you could do, some of the targeting you could do. So um, – 
And and the Republicans were playing catch-up then because we were ahead of them in 2008. Mm -hmm. And they built a lot of it in 2012. And I remember uh, being in the boiler room. The boiler room is where all the top people on the campaign sit as the returns are coming in and turnouts coming in and the analytics people are updating us every two hours and where there are trouble spots and if the legal team is listening, if there are problems, et cetera. So we're sitting there and at some point um, in 2012, I remember that – we learned that, you know, the handheld app that the Romney people had, which yes. I think was called Orker, broke yeah. down. Yeah, something like that. And a Orca. guy, Mitch Stewart, a great guy who was always integral to our field operation, he uh, um, he said, wow, um, those guys are uh, uh, really behind us a little. Theirs, uh, theirs broke down at uh, 2 o'clock. Ours broke down at 4 o'clock in 2008. <laughs> so, you know, they were, they were experiencing the same things then sure. that, um, that we had earlier. And, and, and then it continued. You know, in 2016, they caught up and probably passed Democrats on some things um, and not others. Yeah. So fast forward to, to that world in 2016. I mean, the big story that most of the people are paying attention to is, you know, the Trump campaign's use of Facebook and the parsing of, I mean, I don't want to get into the, the Russian interference right. and all that, but the use of Facebook was renowned to be different, at least between the Trump campaign and the, and the Clinton campaign. Can you speak to that at all? Um You know, I think in every campaign, people are looking for what did the winners do better than the losers? What did they do differently? Uh Um, You know, they, uh, at least from the telling of the story, uh, they are are confident that they found better ways to target individual voters, better ways to spread, get ads to um, spread to like-minded people. Um, uh, You know, how far ahead, I, I couldn't quantify to what degree? I think we did a fair amount of that um, as well. Um, but you know, there's a human dimension in these campaigns, along with all the advances in big data and analytics and targeting, uh, that you also have to succeed on. Um, and so I think that it's it's always going to be hard to pinpoint. You know, in 2016, um, the third party voters turned out to be a a bigger factor. Uh, probably than in any other election. Uh, you know, if you look at the number of third-party voters across Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, three mm-hmm. states that Hillary Clinton lost by about 80,000 votes, right. 660,000 people voted third-party. Um, my belief from looking at exit polls is third-party voters, particularly in those states, were disproportionately uh, Democratic-leaning voters. And do you think those those voters are disaffected by their the Democratic candidate, or do you think they are being manipulated by, by others, maybe? You know, I, I actually think there's um, there could be another dynamic. I, I think that if you go back, you look at Nate Silver, who is uh-huh. was regarded as the premier forecaster of, of elections, and people don't, consumers, I'm saying, don't generally understand what forecasters do. But if day after day, People who may not – look, let's be clear and honest. There were two candidates in that race who both had significantly net unfavorable ratings, Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. 12 to 15, 16 percent more unfavorable than favorable, right? 
That was unprecedented in the history of presidential elections. And if you hear, if you're one of those people who isn't thrilled with either candidate and you hear day after day that Hillary Clinton has a 98% probability of winning, right, which is a meaningless number because it doesn't matter what the probability is. You have to turn your voters out. You've got to get them to vote for you. So you may feel, you know what? I don't like either of these candidates. She's got this in the bag. I'm going to go vote third party. Well, now if you're in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, and that was the choice you made, uh, that may not have been the, the outcome you wanted. And um, and I think those probability forecasts are overdone. Mm-hmm. I have enormous respect for Nate Silver's talent. His book, The Signal and the Noise, is phenomenal. Yeah, and he's he was very good the, at he it. He was one of the very but few that what, wasn't at 98%. But why are, we, why are we publishing this as news? Yeah. It's not news. Right, it is right. a statistical analysis that has nothing to do with the campaign. And probability of winning doesn't mean you're going to win. Just like in his book, uh, he, he, you know, he, he bases his theory on a very valid theory called Bayes' theorem, but the first number in the theorem is often, what do you believe the probability of an event to be? Right, prior and he said, you know, before the first plane struck the World Trade Center on 9-11, most people would have put the probability at zero, mm-hmm. which would have given you a zero probability of it happened. Right. So, but once the first plane hits, that probability goes up because now you've witnessed it. So, and I'm paraphrasing his book a little bit, but that's not news. 98, what, what difference does it make? What her probability of winning is none. Why are we giving news space to this stuff? And I don't blame them, Nate, for doing it. He's got a website. It's very well read. It's fine. But it doesn't belong in the newspaper. It doesn't belong being touted on TV as news. It's not relevant. Let people decide on election day whether the candidates are going to win or not. Because I do think, you know, overconfident candidates, people talking about how they've got it in the bag, are that can depress vote or give people, if there's a third choice, go do it. And so then what is the role of a polling operation like the one we're trying to develop here? I mean, one of the things that we we saw was a lack of supply. There was not good polling data coming out of Montana for service or for aggregators like Nate Silver or the Upshot or whatever. So we thought there right. was market opportunity there. Well, you got sort to, of the public you, interest. You, you've got to look at it from the perspective of what I do for a living. My my data rarely gets published. Mm-hmm. We occasionally do polls for public consumption. But you got to realize that for any strategic endeavor, the point of polling isn't to take the temperature of people. It's to understand what is going to drive their decision that you're trying to influence. So if it's an election, what is ultimately going distri- to drive people's decision to vote for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Mitt Romney or Barack Obama? What is important to them that's going to tip the balance in deciding their vote? And then how do you make sure you are in that conversation with them in a meaningful way for them and give the most persuasive arguments why you are the person to answer those pain points that they have? That's what polling and focus groups should be designed to do. Not take the temperature, not tell you what position to take, but tell you how do you make the most persuasive argument you can for your point of view, for what you want to do for people. Yeah, and it it seems that this take the temperature notion is the thing that fuels those media stories. And then ironically, I hear Nate Silver and others that talk about, you know, the problem with political journalism is all they do is cover the horse race, yet they're sort of providing metrics for that horse race that perpetuates the talk of it. Well, look, we have we have a uh, uh, I don't want to call it an epidemic, but we definitely have a uh, um, 
We have a tidal wave of polling going on right now that's coming out of colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. Now, I mentioned Lee Miringoff and Marist. They were one of the first to do it, right? It has put their university on the map. Yeah. These are branding tools for universities. They're not going to go away. But as I say, you know, I tell people when I do a poll, the horse race number is not always and often is not the most important number in the poll. It's not what you're looking for. You're looking to explain why the horse race number is sitting where it is. If it went down, why did it go down? If it went up, why did it go up, right? You still – but the obsession there, I haven't seen any polls during election season that don't lead with the horse race. Mm. And why? It is not what you should be using it for. Even if you're a news organization, right? Think about how much you could be informing people about what's really going on in the electorate. But we get obsessed with the favorable rating, the um, horse race question, you know, um, and, uh, and sometimes it's out of balance. You know, I got asked on television about how can Hillary Clinton get elected president when she's her trust numbers are so bad. Right. Right. No one ever asked the Trump people, how was he going to get elected when his trust numbers were so bad? And both of them had negative trust numbers. So there was a dynamic going on there that was much more relevant and probably from a journalistic perspective, more interesting than that. And getting stuck on those top line numbers just distorts the conversation that is is out in the ether. Uh, instead of one that might be more relevant and more compelling for people. And do you ever struggle with trying to make sure the candidate keeps that in mind, or does the candidate always sort of understand? Keeps that? what in mind? That keeps under, uh, in mind that hey, don't pay attention to the to the to the horse race number, the horse race cover. Well, I coverage. didn't say don't pay attention to it. Okay, I said it's 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 not it's always not the, the most important number. Okay, right. Okay. Um, and I then went on and, and what I said was, if it's changing and moving, what becomes really important is can you pinpoint why? Mm. And then how do you address that? And presumably, if you're a good pollster, as you go from poll to poll, even when you're doing tracking polls, we never do just pure tracking polls. Analytics people do sometimes because they're short. We're always embedding attitudes, messaging, because we want to be able to diagnose if something's changing what just changed. Okay. You know, that's where the analysis comes in. Mm-hmm. Not just who moved, why did they move? Why did it move? Was it something that was in, a, was in the news, you know? Was it a comment one of the, one of the characters, uh, one of the candidates made? Was it, um, you know, an off-the-cuff comment at a fundraiser? We've seen that happen now in several yeah. campaigns. Yeah. It happened in 2012. It happened in 2016. And so you want to understand those things so you can react quickly, address it if you have to, uh-huh. and move on to get back to your core message. Yeah. And so as we move forward, you know, what do I'm trying to think of what campaigns look like. Like, you know, it seemed like just Trump as a candidate violated so many kind of what I thought were were norms. So many things that would blow up a candidate previously seemed to just not – affect him, does that, does do those rules not apply to him going forward? Well, look, again, you, you, you have, you, you got to look at um, uh, each election as its own unique dynamic. No uh-huh. two elections are the same. Um, somebody once said, I wish I could remember who it was, history doesn't often 
repeat itself. Uh, history doesn't really repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Huh. Um, look, you know, that election, um, you know, you seemed nothing went wrong for Donald Trump. He, he had the lowest popular vote percentage of any yeah. candidate in modern times elected in the Electoral College. He had one of the highest unfavorable ratings of any president ever elected. Mm -hmm. His honest and trustworthy numbers were always as low and negative as Hillary Clinton's were. Um, the third party vote was extraordinarily high and it was high in a couple of key states. So, you know, we obsessed over Florida and Ralph Nader and Al Gore losing by 500 votes. Um, here we had, you know, a massive number of people voting third party. Um, and George Bush won the uh, 270 electoral votes because he won New Hampshire. It's right. four votes. Nobody paid attention because of what happened in Florida. Mm -hmm. He campaigned in New Hampshire five times. Al Gore didn't. Right. That makes so a difference. It made a difference. It was four little electoral votes from a little state in New England. So, you know, you, you just – you got to be careful about overgeneralizing, but in terms of where campaigns go from here, in terms of the use of data, it's going to get more sophisticated. It's going to get more individualized where you can really, uh, I suspect, you know, two or three presidential elections from now, we will have pushed the envelope even further. So, you know, it'll be the equivalent of instead of getting uh, rocket ships that can land on the moon to getting a, a rocket ship to land on the right, moon. Right, right. Right, and actually do it, Right. Um, so I think that'll evolve more. I'm not sure that's healthy for the democracy. I'm not sure the balkanization of our media is healthy for the democracy. Um, you know, I think right now what we know is we have people consuming, and studies have been done on this, people now can only consume news they agree with. Mm -hmm. It's not healthy for a democracy, and it's not healthy for us as a society. You know, if the only people we talk to are people like us, you know, we're not having the kind of common conversation that a democracy needs that's healthy for people to realize, hey, we've got some things in common here we could do together instead of just seeing each other as arch enemies. How do we fix that? I mean, that that trend yeah. is strong and it's clear and people see that in themselves, I think. I see it in myself. I mean, it's much yeah. more pleasant to read stuff I agree with. Yeah. Yeah. How do we change it? Well, I don't think it's an easy problem to solve. No. Um, you know, and, and, and it, it, you know, in, in my most cynical moments, I would say that horse has left the barn and it's not going back in. Okay. Um, but I'm not sure of that. I'm not sure that just as we have found transformative ways to connect people to each other around the world, whether it's through Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, you know, those technologies that, by the way, in 2008, we were barely thinking about in campaigns. You right. Know, certainly not, you know, in the 90s. You know, I think it's possible that those innovations and people will look for ways to use those tools to bring people together in ways that are as creative and compelling as the momentum to keep consuming the news you like and agree with is today. And that I, I don't see those solutions yet on the horizon, but I know there are people thinking about them. I know there are people thinking that we have to get to a better conversation here. Yeah. It's going to take some leaders to be able to do that, to look at these tools and to say, hey, here's what they how they could be used for good and maybe take some regulators, I would think, to, to get in the conversation well, as well. Well, you know, look, I think we've got to be careful about regulators if we're talking about certainly traditional media. Sure. I mean, I think we've got to, you know, preserve the free press. I think the attacks on the free press are horrendous. That should not happen. Our founders revered the free press. If, if any of the people today on any side are talking about fake news, shame on them. Go back and read what was written about the founders of this country. Yeah. The people who made sure that the freedom of press 
not being abridged was in our Bill of Rights and the very First Amendment as salient as the freedom of religion is. Mm -hmm. So for anybody to be trashing that in this day and age is, is so misguided and so awful. You know, and I'm not just saying that as a former journalist. It is intrinsic to our democracy, and our founders understood that. And if you don't understand it today, then get out of government. You don't belong there. You don't deserve to be there. And so the dismissing news as fake news is one thing, but there's actually fake news out there. It's, it's sort of unfortunate that that phrase has been co-opted. But you know, information well, manipulation through these platforms is, is a danger. If there are fact checkers mm -hmm. who fact check things, there are tools at your disposal. Somebody once said, you know, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably, probably is. Probably is, yeah. Well, so if something sounds outrageous and probably not real, go investigate it. I mean, you're a citizen in this democracy. You know, the word citizen was very important to the founders. Uh -huh. There was actually no title more important than citizen. And um, because they were eschewing titles, obviously, you know. I think that, you know, we have an obligation. Like, don't don't take and regurgitate on either side stuff that sounds crazy to you. Go look it up. Right. You can look up any fact checker anywhere to see if this is false or not, if it's true or not. We have the most outrageous things that have been said about people. Um, and for political person, you know, you know, for political people to be engaging in that, you know, it, it's unconscionable. We have an obligation as citizens, though, on our end. Don't take, you know, take everything with a grain of salt. Be a citizen. Do your job. Look, people have a lot on their plates today. Uh -huh. We are, they work hard. They don't have a lot of spare time. But, you know, if you're paying attention to politics and something sounds too uh, false to be true, go look it up. If it sounds too good to be true, go look it up. It's not that hard. There's PolitiFact. There, every major newspaper in America, news outlets, they have fact checkers. Just go look up fact checker. And these are independent people. They are not partisan. And they simply give you the facts behind whether a statement is true or the facts that say that the statement is false. It doesn't take that long. Do you think we – I mean, I agree with you, Joel. Do you think we can get back to a place where facts matter? <laughs> Well, I don't know. Yeah. Um, look, I think by and large facts matter. Um, I think the question is, is it, are, are we going to be able to get uh, – make them matter in the way that they once did hmm. or is this going to continue to deteriorate? Um, you know, I always – I remember this. You know, you remember when, when, when President Obama was trying to pair, pass health care. Yep. Um, and I remember – uh, protesters and senior citizens saying, keep the government's hands off my Medicare. Right. So you're on Medicare and you've been paying Medicare taxes and you're getting this great benefit that you love so much and you don't know it comes from the government. I don't blame that citizen. We are failing to educate people and our meet in, in ways that make them better citizens. We don't even teach citizenship in civics in most of our schools yeah. today. Um, you know, I think I saw one study on the number of questions uh, high school seniors can get correct, basic questions about our democracy, and it's a pretty low percentage. But look, this is with adults too. I mean, we need to make sure that that we are teaching democracy in a fact-based manner that helps create good citizens, not just good students. We're all citizens. This is a job for us. 
So let's, uh, as we I feel kinda, like I'm preaching a little too much. No, here. this is good. This is good. <laughs> um, so kind of as we, I, I want to end on a positive note, Joel. I mean, you've been super generous with your time, but I, w- I want to kind of look ahead to what's next for you. What do you think is happening in 2018, 20? And, and what role do you envision uh, the Benison Strategy Group playing in that? Well, we've, we've played a, a role in a lot of things from candidate races to uh, initiatives and referendums. We, we've worked with a group called the Fairness Project and a partner of, uh, at our firm, Amy Levin, out in California. And the Fairness Project, they are 7-0 and o on uh, passing ballot initiatives in states to raise the minimum wage Excellent. to different levels in each state. Um, uh, passing Medicaid expansion in Maine this last year. Um, doing more of those, you know, our client summed up the wins and said, you know, we've helped get raises for 3 million, pe- you know, I think uh, uh, 7 million people and $3 billion in raises. Wow. It's an enormous amount across those seven states. So doing a lot of things like that, cause-related work. But um, we've got, obviously, we've got active candidates too. We, uh, um, uh, in 2017, our firm uh, partnered our firm in New York. Danny Franklin elected, uh, helped elect uh, Governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy. Okay. Um, we've got clients, senators who are running for re-election. So we'll we'll keep our hands in politics for sure. Um, but um, we do other work too for a lot of cause-related groups, nonprofits, NGOs, really helping them stay on strategy too. Because a lot of those organizations have great goals and do great work and. Um, you know, there's a study recently that said, you know, 67% of CEOs of those groups think they can have a big impact on social change they want to make, but only 14% think they're ac- actually achieving it. Interesting. And in the survey that was conducted and published, um, a lot of the things that they said get in their way are things under their control. So we want to do more strategic work with those kinds of groups, helping them stay on track and do big things, which... Uh, a lot of the things we have we take for granted originated in philanthropy, things like 9-11, emergency services, mm-hmm. kid seats in cars. I mean, it's hard work, um, but it's it's great work and you can achieve big goals. Yeah, maybe those are some of the, the forces that can make positive change towards some of the problems we identified earlier. I think that's where some of it will come from. Yeah. I think there will be some people um, who are in philanthropy, who are coming out of business, who, because I think business people know that what's going on is not good for business, and mm-hmm. they need a strong workforce, they need an educated workforce, and they know that. And I think that some folks they are maybe the ones who kind of put some things together to say, "Hey, we've got to create some opportunities for people to start having better conversations and more common conversations uh, across the polarized lines that we live with today." Awesome. Well, Joel, thank you for this conversation. Thank you. It's great to meet you, and. Uh, Best of luck, and we hope you see you in Montana another time soon. Well, you know I'll be back. (laughs) Thanks, Joel. Thank you. All right, that one was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed listening to Joel as much as I enjoyed uh, talking with him. Coming up next week, we have Zach Millar. Zach is the founder and the owner of The Dram Shop. And if you lived in Missoula, you got to be under a rock to not know what The Dram Shop is. They are going to be celebrating their third anniversary coming up here in a few weeks. And I was able to do an on-site interview with Zach um, a little bit ago. And uh, it was really fun just learning about his journey and how The Dram Shop came to life. And those guys are just an example of a, of a small business killing it here in Missoula with creativity and hustle. Look forward to that episode. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. Remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. 
They're our first sponsor and we can't thank them enough. CED is one of the largest electrical wholesale supply companies in the country with nearly 600 locations nationwide. CED is a privately owned business-to-business company that distributes just about every piece of equipment you need to keep your lights on, your energy flowing, and your lifestyle comfortable. CED is also an important employer in our community, and they have a keen interest in University of Montana graduates. To explore career opportunities, check out www.cedcareers.com. Moving forward, if you have any suggestions for guests, cool people doing awesome things, please let us know. And if you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. First, rate us on iTunes. Ratings help others find the show. Second, write a review. The more reviews we get, and hopefully positive ones, the more we can grow. And third, please just tell your friends about it. In addition, you can also support A New Angle financially. For information on sponsorship opportunities, please visit our website, www.business.umt.edu slash a new angle. There you will also find a link to support the pod. Before we go, I'd like to thank a few folks for making this project happen. First, my colleagues at the College of Business for supporting this endeavor. In particular, Professor Josh Herbold for writing and recording original music for the show. We also have music provided by Switchback Records, a student-run record label here at the college. I'd also like to thank Elizabeth Willie, recent UM graduate Michelle DeFluke, and the entire comms team here at the College of Business. And finally, thanks to my producer, Stefan Borsum. As we close, if you have any suggestions, comments, questions, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.